Well, if you have your Bibles, please open with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're still doing and will do in the end. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who's given himself for us. Lord, we want to give ourselves back to you today. And Lord, it's you that we want to hear about, to hear. It's you that we want to obey. And all God's people said, Amen. I titled this, The Preeminence of Jesus Christ. The preeminence of Jesus Christ. See, the Bible is a supremely the book of Lord Jesus Christ. As we've talked before, it begins in Genesis chapter 1, the creation. We see in Genesis chapter 2, we see again the beginning of marriage. In chapter 3, we see the beginning of sin. And the rest of the Bible is all about Jesus Christ. His desire to redeem back man to himself. In fact, next week's message is going to be on reconciliation right from our text. But today, we're going to look at the, the preeminence. The Old Testament records uh, uh, is really a, a preparation for his coming, as I was mentioning. And the Gospels really present him as God in the flesh, who's come into the world to save the lost. I'd like to read from Luke 24, verses 22 through 27. Some of my most favorite verses. In fact, if you remember, Jesus, this is after his resurrection, and it's on the road to Emmaus. Let me read in verse 22. But also some women among us amazed us when they went to the tomb early in the morning. They did not find his body, and they came saying that they also had seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, slow to heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scripture. And then in John chapter 5, verse 39, it says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that testify about me. The Bible is the teaching of Jesus Christ, as mentioned. None is more significant than Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. In fact, let's read our text together. Notice he is the image of this invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. This passage is dramatic when you stop and think of it. It's powerful. It really removes the confusion who Jesus Christ is. Because Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. In fact, this passage and understanding this passage and other passages that are similar, they're vital. They're really essential for understanding the Christian faith. While the Colossian church was centered upon this person of of Jesus Christ, the heretics were denying his humanity. They viewed Christ as as really a a lesser emanation of really of God, like a, a, a created being that each time they get a little further and further away from what the original form was. It's what's called Gnosticism. So he was a a lesser descending spirit. It was a a philosophical, again, dualism. They believed that the spirit was good, but the, the flesh was evil. And that this spirit that's coming from God could never really inhabit or be part of a flesh because the flesh was evil. God would not do such a thing. So therefore, it could not be God in the flesh, as First John says, and the Gospel of John says, and especially John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This was the seriousness of the, the heresy, to deny, again, the deity and even the trinity of who God is, is heresy. It is not Christianity. It is false. From this time, what was called the Arian, again, doctrine, from this heresy of the Arians all the way until today, even the Jehovah Witnesses, and there are others today, believe these same things. Well, this passage, again, goes against it. It refutes what they're saying. Look again in verse 15 of our text. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and in a relationship with the Father. Jesus Christ has this relationship with the Father. He is the image. He is the icon. He would say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Again, the passage makes it very clear that Jesus Christ is the image of of the invisible God. See, God is spirit. And when you have seen Jesus, he says, when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the exact representation, exactly as you see Jesus in that moral likeness, in that purity, that holiness, in justice, in righteousness, When you have seen these things in the love of God, when you've seen the love of Jesus, you have seen the love of the Father. God sent his own son to die upon the cross to demonstrate that love to you and me. How much he loves you. That he would endure, again, the suffering of the cross. 
being put upon a cross and nailed to a cross, hanging there, not being able to even get a breath without trying to force yourself up on these nails that are holding you down. And he willingly went to the cross for you and me. Now that word again, that image, the image it uses, an image or a likeness referring to a, a statue. When a statue is, is made of someone, it's a, it's a likeness. But that idea is that it is of him, of God the Father. That when you see Jesus, you have seen the Father. When you and I were created, that is Adam and Eve in the garden, the human beings. Let me read Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And God created him in his own image. The image of God, he created him male and female, he created him. God created man originally in that same image, that same likeness. Man possesses intellect, emotion, and will just as God does. He can think, he can feel, he can choose, he's like God. But that image has been marred because of sin. God created us, the crown of all creation, that he would have a relationship with us, just as Jesus has a relationship with the Father. He wants a relationship with you and me. He doesn't want us just to read the Bible to know facts, but to read to know him. Read to hear him speak to you and me. To know his heart, to know his will. He wants his word to become flesh in us, to change us and transform us and renew our minds. That's, that's the desire of the Father. So he's created us in this way. And we, amazingly, get to be partakers of these, but not his divine, again, attributes. Those things of being omniscient, all-knowing, or all-powerful, or unchangeable, or omnipresent everywhere at the same time. But in that image, that moral image and likeness, we're like him. But when we saw Jesus Christ, he was everything the Father was. And to see him was to see the Father. We must remember, though, that we are human. We're not divine. Why, we're creating that image, it's marred. And all because of the fall of Adam and Eve, when they lost their innocence, once they were innocent and free of sin, incapable of dying, but when they sinned, the innocence was gone for the first time in their life. They knew what sin was. They knew, again, this world was becoming sinful very quickly. And I know in my own life, when I was born again, I've shared this, and it's interesting when people say that, when I did the greatest sin I ever did was right after I was born again. And people sit up and they want to know what that sin was. The greatest sin that any of us could ever do is when we know for the first time in our life we've sinned against a holy God. When our eyes are opened up and we see this sin and we see God in all of his holiness and all of his purity and all of his righteousness and we recognize we have sinned, we have rebelled against this God. Prior to that time, prior to being born again, you were blinded by the God of this world. But, but again, when God opens up our life, and that's why it's so important to understand 
that when man died in the garden, physically that process began, but he spiritually died. That's why a person must be born again. That's why he has to be born again. Unless a person is born again, he will never enter the kingdom of God. And when we look at Jesus, we see the Father and the Father's love. When man sinned in the garden, he forfeited, forfeited those qualities of innocence, of holiness. He was created in creature-like holiness. But again, when he puts his faith in Christ, however, a person's promise, that image, that image of God will be restored to him or to her. Let me read Romans 8. 29, for those he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Well, first of all, this expresses the, the unique preeminence of Christ. It, it shares, the idea is that he shares his privileges with his brothers and sisters, and that we are a, a new creation. The moment we're born again, we are placed in Christ. We are a new creation in Christ. And a community of men and women who are progressively being conformed to that image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Changed. Day by day. We don't need to change one another. It's the Holy Spirit who changes us in each year that passes as we continue in his word. We become more and more and more like him to a point in this life where God says, look, you're closer to my home than yours. Come and be with me and he'll finish the work in you and me one day. That we then will have that image and likeness, that moral image and likeness like him. We can reason we will be without sin for the first time in our lives. Colossians 3.10 says this, and have put on a, a new self which is being renewed in the true knowledge according to the image of the one who has created him. See, you and I one day will have this same image restored, but the image that is like Jesus Christ. He who began a good work will finish that work in you and me. Unlike man, though, Jesus Christ is perfect. And he is a perfect image of the Father because he is the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says this, that he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. Exactly. Like taking a picture of someone, you can see exactly how their hair was and everything. But in this exact representation is that moralness inside. The mind of Purity, the heart of love, this is what's being restored in us. Everything that you will ever do one day will be loving because God has been working that love into your heart and my heart through the things that we go through. Again, in John 14, 9, Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Just when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Can you imagine walking with Jesus in the garden? Walking as a disciple with him? 
as seeing God in the flesh. That's exactly what it was. But as God is spirit, Jesus was manifested in the flesh. So they could see the Father. The Father that has poured out his love upon this world. That has given his Son. Jesus Christ is the full and the, the final and the complete Really, revelation of God. When you've seen him, you've seen all that God is. In eternity, we'll see all that God does. And all that he has done. See, because Jesus Christ is fully God, but he's also fully man. In humanity, God exists. And when you and I are born again, God comes into your life, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and this is what begins chipping away, shaping and making that image in your life, in my life, as we turn to him, as we trust in him. Well, let's look at the testimony, the testimony of really the apostle John and Paul that walked with him. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word was God. He knew. John saw and recognized that he was God in the flesh. It didn't happen at first. But as he continued to walk with him, day by day, he too was being changed. He too was being affected by, transformed by, being renewed by, and born again. Now Paul how did Paul walk with Jesus? He wasn't one of the original eyewitnesses, but if you remember on that, that road, that Damascus road in Acts chapter 9, he was struck down with that bright light. It says that he was taught by the Lord for three years. And you are taught by the Lord. The Spirit teaches you and me even through this teaching. As I speak these words, it is the Holy Spirit that will open up your mind if you surrender to the Holy Spirit. When you say, Lord, speak, your servant is listening. I want to know about you. I want to know what is pleasing to you. Paul had gone through so much as you look at Paul's life. And this is what he says in Colossians 2.9. And we'll look at it more in detail later. For in him, referring to Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in a bodily form. Everything that God was dwells within him. And God dwells in you. And God dwells in me. Christ's own personal claim... Notice with me in John 8, verse 58, And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Remember at the burning bush? Again, when Moses stood before that burning bush, and the Lord spoke from that bush. He says, Take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. And he says, I am. This is signifying that he is God. In fact, it's even more than that. He says this to you and me today. I am. So what? Some people say sadly when I've talked to him. But he's really saying this. I am everything that you need. Everything that you need. It's interesting though. We think we need a lot of things. Are you agree with that? We, we really think we need a lot. But what we really need is Jesus Christ. 
We need His heart. We need His will in our lives. We need His mind. And Jesus here is claiming to be God. The Eternal One. In John 10, 30 and and through verse 33, let me read, I and the Father are one. They're in unity. They're in harmony. And the Jews picked up the stones again to stone Him, and Jesus answered them, And I show you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for the blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus claimed to be God. And when you go out in the streets, and if you're talking to someone, well, Jesus is really not God. He never claimed to be God. He's claiming to be God right here. The very reason they stoned him, the very reason they want him to go to the cross, because he claimed to be one with God. He claimed to be God in the flesh. Jesus' own words. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Not just, again, this physical image, but everything that God is. I love the book of Mark. One of the things I love about the the book of Mark, and and Jesus will see someone in need, and says, and and he had compassion. And he had compassion. And he had compassion. But if you notice, action follows compassion. Compassion. When Jesus had compassion, he was moved in love to reach out and touch and heal and minister and open up the heart. When he saw the sheep without a shepherd, he taught them. It wasn't enough just to to feel something in the heart, but see, God is love, and if God is love, then love is going to be seen in his life. And when you saw Jesus, you saw the love of God, the very love of God. You see it on the cross, his love. You see it when he reaches out and touches. That he hung out in sinners, and sometimes people condemn sinners. Well, let me give you a clue. Sinners are under condemnation. What they need is Jesus Christ and be saved. They don't need to hear from us that they're sinners. We don't need to tear them down. We need to tell them the good news of who Jesus Christ is. We need to encourage them to take a step of faith, just as you and I have taken that step of faith. Sadly, within the body of Christ, as I mentioned, the the Arians, who first established this fact that Jesus was just like a lesser God, but not even a God. The Jehovah Witnesses today... Deny that Jesus is God. God in the flesh. And sadly, they have missed life. Unless they repent, just as the nation of Israel needs to repent and turn back, they will go to hell forever. I say those words because they're hard, yes. Because we have friends that are Jehovah Witnesses in different groups and cults, and they, they need to see Christ in our lives. They need to know who we believe and why we believe. And it's not just coming and hearing a pastor. It's learning to study the Word, learning to hear from Jesus Himself. 
See, these Arians, like the Jehovah Witnesses today, will argue with you and tell you that Christ is just a created being. Well, look, here they say, he could not be the eternal God. Well, the interpretation is really completely misunderstood. The word used, again, when we, we get to this word firstborn, prototokos, ignores the context of the passage. See, when we, we read something, when we want to understand, we, we need to understand the context of the passage. We need to see the big picture. That's why so often I'll read the whole passage and, and then we'll look at little verses and see how it fits together in harmony with the big picture. Well, again, the word means firstborn chronologically, Sometimes, and it can mean that, but rarely does it ever mean that in the Bible. It refers primarily to a position or rank. Both in the Greek and the Jewish culture, the firstborn was the son who had the right to inheritance. But it wasn't always necessarily true. In the case of Esau, if you remember, who was born first chronologically, but it was Jacob who received that firstborn, who received that inheritance. And Jesus is the one, the right to the inheritance of all creation. In fact, you see that in, in chapter 5, where he's redeeming back the earth. He is that firstborn, the only one that's worthy to open that scroll. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, notice what it says in these last days. He has spoken to us in a son who is appointed heir over all things through whom he also made the world. Jesus Christ spoke this world into existence. Sadly, there are those today that think the deeper things of God is speaking things into existence. What is the deeper things of God? Knowing God and how he could love you you or me or man in a sinful state and give himself for us. That's the deeper things of God. Knowing that God has set his love upon us and he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow and he has given himself completely for us. In Exodus 4.22, notice this is, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my first son and my firstborn. And here he's referring to nations. It's a, a metaphor. Again, the firstborn. Israel wasn't the first nation, but they become this priority, this preeminence, the first in order. That's the context of the passage. It's the context, really, of the Bible when you look at the whole thing. In Colossians 1.18, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself would come to have, notice, first place in everything. That preeminence. He is before all things. That's what the passage is teaching. See, if Paul was teaching that Christ was just a created being, then he would be agreeing with the point they were saying. But he strongly, and this is important to understand, refutes their false teaching. He's describing Christ as perfect and complete image of God himself. Verse 16, notice again that for by him all things were created. He's the creator of the heaven and earth. 
the question rises then, if, if he is the creator, then how could he be a created being? John 1.3 says this, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. He's the one that spoke everything into existence. Can you imagine if you could be there at creation and see him let there be light and there was light? Or when he spoke into existence the trees, when God created the heaven and earth, I don't know if they just kind of grew very quickly or I kind of have this picture as all of a sudden he speaks into existence, there's full growing trees, there's middle-sized trees and little trees. He just simply spoke it. He thought and spoke in. It's interesting because we're going to look at later that he holds all things together by his word. Just imagine if he took his word back. Poof! I think it'd be more than poof. But that idea that he holds all things together. Well, again, that this idea that he's preeminent, he has a relationship with the, the creation. Verse 16, look again. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth. Notice, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him. And notice, for him. All things were created for him, and he is before all things. In him all things hold together again, showing that he is before all things. And everything was created for him. So Paul gives three reasons Again, for Jesus really being first, having priority over. Number one, as we saw, he is the creator. He's created all things. And that's important to understand. So Paul rejects the blasphemy of these false teachers, insists that he is the creator. It's interesting when I talk to people sometimes and they'll, they'll talk about their pagan God or whatever. All you have to do is begin talking about your God who created the heaven and earth and he spoke things into existence. Every person in this world at some point knows there is a creator or a designer. They can see the order of, of this world. But then they have to, and we'll talk about it in a second, they have to suppress that truth. They have to decide, I will not believe the truth. I will not accept it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The truth is affirmed again by John, as I showed you in John chapter 1 verse 3. He created all things in the, in the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 verse 2. Paul maintains that all things were made by him. And see, this is refuting. This letter is to the church of Colossians, but it's to these false teachers as well, the heretics, the heresy. Again, the universe also bears, again, this witness, this tremendous wisdom and knowledge of a creator when you stop and think about it. And let me read Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. I remember the first time I read that, I just... I, I, I go back to it, not in a regular reading, you know, I, I do that, but I, from time to time I just go back and reflect upon this and stop and marvel. In fact, it's a wonderful verse to read at nighttime and then walk out on a clear night and look at the stars. Look at verse 1, it says, And the heavens are telling the glory of God in their expanse, is declaring the work of his hands. 
Day by day pour forth the speech, and night by night reveals the knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. The testimony of nature. I remember my little boy, he couldn't have been more than four years old, and he looks up at the stars that we were looking at one night, and, and who created them, Daddy? Who made them? You know, the Bible, really, in reality, the gospel is so simple, a child can understand it. I don't mean you're going to understand every part, but as you begin putting those pieces together, you're building precept on precept. But a child has that childlike faith. They ask a question they want to know. There are scientists today that refute that there is a God. But when they look at creation, they marvel. There must be a designer. There must be some super mind. But they will not acknowledge God. So they suppress that truth. Well, the testimony that nature of the creator is so clear. So clear. So convicting a person has to suppress that truth has to decide they will reject the truth. And that's what they do. They reject the truth for a lie. Let me read Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse... For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You'll either believe, or you'll choose not to believe. A fool chooses to reject the truth when it's in front of them. Well, the second thing, Jesus, again, is, has first place over creation because he is before all things. Notice again in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning. See, he, he told the Jews again that he, he was before Abraham was born, as we mentioned, and I am. And he's saying, again, anyone that was there at creation had to be the eternal one. And it's so important to understand that he was there. He spoke these things into existence. He is God. The prophet Micah said these things. And going forth are from long ago, the days of eternity. Again, speaking about God. And then in Revelation twenty-two thirteen describes him as the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last and the beginning of the end. Jesus Christ was there before time even started. He was there when time started. That makes him the eternal one. It makes him, again, have first place in the creation that he, again, spoke all these things into existence. And the third thing is that he has his first place over creation is that in him all things hold together. Not only did Jesus create this universe he also sustains it he holds it together by his work he maintains it stop and this is delicate perfect 
balance, that we are in this rotation, a perfect rotation. If the earth would just twist a little bit, this place would become an ice box. Everything would go out of balance. The water, the oxygen, everything in this life. He literally holds everything together. He is the source. He is the power. He's behind every consistency in this universe. And 2 Peter 3.10 says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with the intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. What he's describing here is the scene when every atom, every molecule, everything just totally disintegrates. At this time, he holds it together, but this earth at some point will be totally destroyed. There will be a, a new heaven and a new earth. And Hebrews 1.3 says again, he upholds all things by the word of his power. My word doesn't go far. Does your word go far? But his, his word is powerful. So powerful to change and transforms a person's life if they will just think, they will just listen. He can heal you with his words. He can comfort you with his words. But we don't have that unless he's speaking through us. Again, this one who is preeminent, this one, again, has a relationship with this unseen world. The spirit world, as we would say. Look again in verse 16. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities. It's speaking of various ranks of angels. Spirit world. Now we know there are fallen angels. We know that angels have manifested themselves in bodies. But all in all, the spirit world is an unseen world. They're spirits. Just as there's a spirit in you and me. Ephesians 1.21 says this. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. See, Jesus Christ is referred to as above all of these spirit world. Above every authority, every power, every dominion. And Philippians 2.10 says this, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those in heaven, notice, and those of earth, and those who are under the earth. Speaking of that fallen spiritual world or spirit world and those spirit world that are with the Lord and those here on earth, every knee will bow. See, again, this reminds us and proves that he is God because, again, angels worship God. But we don't worship man. Well, again, Jesus is preeminent. In fact, he has a relationship with the church. Look at verse 18. He is also the head of the body, and of the church, he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have that first place in everything. Well, this presents four great truths in our text here in the relation to the church. Number one, he is the head of the church. There are many metaphors that are used in this scripture to describe the church. It's a, it's a family, it's a kingdom, it's, it's again a vineyard and a flock and a building and even a bride. These, these are all used. But here it refers again to the body, the, the church, which Christ is the head. It's interesting, though, that in the Old Testament equivalent, there's no equivalent for the, the church in the Old Testament. 
because it was a mystery held until this time that Christ came. We're reminded in 1 Corinthians 12 that he controls every part of the body. He is the head of the body. His life is lived out through its members. He wants to live in us and through us. And what that means for you and me is we have to learn to get out of his way. It means, you know, not taking things on our own power, not striving on our flesh, but strive to enter into his rest, allowing God to work through us, to minister through us. That when you're counseling somebody, that you're listening to what they're saying, and you're allowing God to speak through you. Well, he energizes, he empowers. Maybe you've been in a situation where you shared with somebody, you're ministering somebody, or you're just tired, you don't have any energy, but now you, you begin to serve the Lord, and all of a sudden you have an energy, a burst of energy you've never had. He is the one that energizes you. He coordinates He is the one that brings the pieces together for the greater good. He takes a body that's diverse and he makes them one. The diversity of the spiritual gifts and ministries, he brings those together and he gives them harmony. So the people are one. They're diverse backgrounds, personalities and ages, but he makes us one that we're here because of him looking to him. He brings them to a point that that they no longer are selfish in their thoughts or actions, but what they begin to do is they begin to serve others. They begin to support others. They begin to hold others up, whether it be in prayer and finances or whatever they can do to help them, to encourage them. He's the head. He's the one that brings all the pieces together. He's the source of the church. Look again in verse 18. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning of the, the church has its origins really in Jesus. Here's the church. Every building, wherever Jesus' name is being lifted up, this is the church. It's not a building like this building. It's the people. And we're all in Christ. When you are placed in Christ, we are the church of God. Our membership is in God. We are part of a body linked and connected with people we never knew before administering to people we never knew before, and doing things we never thought we would do before. In fact, Ephesians 1.4 says this, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. That means he knew you, all-knowing knew you, that he was going to place you into the body of Christ. He was going to make you one with other brothers and and sisters. This was done before the world was created, and that you also would be holy and blameless. First, that's a position that when you are put in Christ, God sees you just as you never sinned, but he's making you holy more and more each day. Now, our part, we have a part there. Please understand, Lord, help me to have holy and pure thoughts. That begins with our confession of sin. He's faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Yes. But we surrender. We trust him. And the more we trust him, the more we give to him, the more we become like him. The more that we're changed. And our position is holy and blameless before him. And notice in love. In love. You know love covers a multitude of sin? You know, that, that's really great. Love covers a multitude of sin. I'm not going to ask, is anybody mad at their wife or mad at their brother or anything? It's so interesting. We could say, well, we're mad at them, but we love them. 
we're mad at them, and we're going to tell the whole world about everything they've done. Love covers a multitude of sin. Love will not talk about, stink about others. Love will not tear others down. God doesn't talk stink about you or me. Love covers a multitude of sin. Love begins to pray. Love begins to lift up. Love begins to minister. And that's what God is motivating in the church, and that's what he is doing in your life and my life. Well, Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Again, verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, and the firstborn from the dead. Again, that firstborn translates that word prototokos. Of all those who have been raised from the dead, ever will be Christ, again, is the highest rank. He's the first. He was the first from the dead. It doesn't mean that he was created, but he has this priority. He's gone before you and me. Well, Christ is also the preeminent one. And again in verse 18, so that, that he himself would come to have first place in everything. You know, sometimes we want to be the first in the, the line to get into the, a store, or the first to go to a movie, or the first for this. Jesus has first place because he is first. And he is love. He goes through the shadow, the valley, the shadow of death before you. He prepares the way for you. Speaking about the church, he says, I go away and prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. He's gone and he's preparing a place. And one day he's going to bring you and me to him. He has this priority. He has this first place. He is at work all the time, yet at the same time he's on the throne, interceding for you and me continually every day. But we need to see him as first place in our life. Is he the Lord of our life? It's easy to call him Lord, but do we let him guide and direct our steps? Do we make our plans and then will not let him intervene? Or... Do we let him intervene and recognize that God's plans are better? He's prepared for us. And when we give him that first place, we experience that fullness of joy he has for us. See, as a a result of his sacrificial death and resurrection, Jesus has come to have first place in everything. He's laid down his life for you and me. Paul wants to drive this point home very hard, forcefully. Jesus is not merely another emanation or a little God. He is God in the flesh. And he has this preeminence in this first place. Let me go back to Philippians 2, 8 and 9. Notice what it says. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name which Every, which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and glory of God the Father. Look with me in verse 19 in our text again. For it was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness of God to dwell in him. I love that. It was the Father's good pleasure. 
You can't help but think about John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That was God's pleasure. God loved the world so much he gave his son. And here, it was God was sending his son to die for you and for me. That we too would be in relationship with him. We too would know him. That he would have first place in our lives that we would surrender. That we would be in him and complete in him. In fact, Colossians 2.10 says this, In him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. Today, as a Christian, as a believer, you are complete in Christ. What I mean by that is everything that God has ever called you to do, you are complete. Everything that he wants to do today, you have every gift, every person around you. When God is ready to do more, when you're ready to allow him to do more, then God will add to that, but you are complete. Complete meaning what? The price is paid for. His spirit is working in you. You're being changed and transformed. He will finish that work in you. And he is all that you ever need. He is Christ. The question is, is he preeminent in your life? Is he the Lord of your life? No matter what the scripture says, it's something that you have to decide. Will you let him be the Lord of your life? That means every day. That means every moment. That means every week, every year. And more and more we learn to surrender to him. When you recognize that you need him, then you give yourself to him. You allow him that free will to have that Again, that first place in your life to change your schedule, to direct you, to guide you. To guide you even sometimes in the most uncomfortable situations because God's wanting to bring you close to him. Because he loves you with an everlasting love. Please stand for the last song. Father, we thank you for today. We we thank you for your wonderful grace and your love in your goodness, and your mercy. Lord, we want to make you first in our life and in every way. And Lord, those things that are in our life that are hindering us from really allowing you to be the Lord of our lives, Lord, show us. Grant us that grace that leads us to repentance, that we, we give over to you everything that we follow in that straight and narrow path that leads to life thank you for the hope that we have the hope in you in jesus name we pray amen